Welcome to Mike Linus. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. Happy election week. You were telling me that you were fighting a pretty severe case of Twitter brain this week. I feel I have, too. I feel like I've constantly been on my phone, constantly been firing out, you know, great hot takes, scalding, brilliant insights, but... Yeah, I was gonna uh, talk to you about that, because actually, uh, our, our new partners at the Lincoln Project haven't liked some of the stuff you've been saying. They want it, they want to have a sit down. Ooh, uh, they're, go- they're gonna censor me, are they? <laughs> That's my Ricky Gervais impression. <laughs> that one might have been a bit on the note. Maybe not. Listen to it when it comes out and yeah. see if it works. But where's your state of mind at right now? A couple of days ago, we had you know a little jam session about the election. Biden has since been, I guess it's been called for him. I know they're still counting some votes, but it's pretty much official now that he's the president-elect. Uh, we've had a little bit of time to cool down. Where's your head at right now? I mean, at this moment, my head is just exhausted from processing so much data about the election, trying to go through it, sort out what I really think, try to kind of parse all of the different narratives. But I think basically I feel uh, much the same way that I did, I guess it was on Wednesday when we did our conversation with Bronco, which is on the Patreon, by the way, if people want to listen to it. You know, I was already feeling then that there was this kind of emerging narrative that, you know, actually things sort of, you know, they went they, they went according to plan. Don't worry, everyone. It was always supposed to be a close election. Yeah, it was always going to be close, uh, yada, yada. And, you know, I found that's really only intensified as uh, more states, you know, Georgia, it looks like, is going to flip. Biden uh, probably won Pennsylvania, too. So, I mean, I, I've I've said, well, not all, but some of my thoughts in a Jacobin piece that I hope will be published soon. But just, you know, for the record, you know, look, yeah, Trump has been defeated, but there are so many different red flags here in terms of the results the Democrats got. So first of all, we need to push back on any kind of revisionism, which says this was going to be a close election. Days before the election, Democratic uh, media surrogates like James Carville, people like that were confidently predicting a landslide. There's a Democratic pollster quoted in the Daily Beast on October the 29th or perhaps October 30th, who said that this was going to be the biggest landslide that you could possibly achieve in a country this polarized. I mean, think back to election morning, okay? Think back to Tuesday. Uh, Remember all of the uh, euphoria about the Democrats flipping Texas? You know, the shift from the kind of pure triumphalism in the span of a few hours from that to this kind of defensive reassurance that actually this all went according to plan. uh, It really didn't. Think about what it says that an incumbent president presiding quite disastrously and incompetently over the worst uh, depression since the 1930s, over a pandemic that has killed roughly a quarter million Americans, has never been popular, somehow added millions of votes to his 2016 total. The Democrats hemorrhaged key constituencies. Trump actually got the single highest uh, non-white vote of any Republican presidential candidate since 1960. And that's to say nothing of the down-ballot losses for Democrats, which saw them lose a bunch of seats in the House. I think there's there's still some counting going on there, but they lost seats in the House. They targeted something like 10 Senate seats. 
And despite record-breaking fundraising, record-breaking spending in places like South Carolina, uh, where they were trying to unseat Lindsey Graham, you know, and, and the even in the more chaotic one, uh, the ridiculous Amy McGrath campaign against Mitch McConnell, you know, Democrats got pummeled. Why is it important to emphasize this? Because there's already an emerging narrative. While simultaneously, you know, there's one narrative which says actually nothing went wrong and everything went according to plan. You know, there's apparently a Democratic caucus call yesterday where Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn were scolding everyone and saying, this is what happens when we run on uh, socialized medicine and defunding the police. And, you know, when people are talking about socialism, yada, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the basic idea. Part of the context being these uh, Senate runoffs that look like they're going to be happening in Georgia. So by the way, get ready for two of the most expensive Senate races in American history coming up in January. It never stops. But so, yeah, on the one hand, nothing went wrong. On the other hand, this was a disaster and uh, it's the left's fault. It's the fault of Black Lives Matter. Uh, It's the fault of, you know, Medicare for all campaigners. And I want to say to these people, you got the campaign you wanted. Bernie was defeated. You got the uh, the most conservative candidate. Uh, You ran the campaign that you wanted to. You promised a landslide and uh, you didn't deliver one. So, I mean, it's it's kind of pissing into the wind, but uh, God, I, I wish these people would for once just take some responsibility and not use everything as a pretext to shift even further to the right. But there we go. Um, and something, something else that I think is important to say during a week like this is that, you know, Trump is not some invincible opponent. He's always been exactly as he seems. You know, he is inept, incompetent. He's unpopular. There's no master plan. Uh, I mean, in terms of his political strengths, I guess he has, you know, a kind of a willingness to break taboos. He's very good at spotting particular vulnerabilities. He had certain instincts that allowed him to be uh, somewhat heterodox in 2016 in a way that allowed him to win the Republican primary. But besides all that, Trump is not, you know, very difficult to read. Uh, And for all the reasons I said already, the pandemic, recession, depression, etc., Trump's unpopularity, he should have been quite easy to beat. Something that always appears every time Democrats achieve lackluster election results is a version of the story that centrists anyway have been telling themselves since... I guess, at least the 1980s and maybe even before that, uh, which is just that, you know, the country is irredeemably conservative and all you can do is kind of ride the wave, distance yourself from, you know, activists, uh, all these big causes they have that are so unpopular and, you know, run the same kind of blue dog, third way-ish campaigns, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, have been running almost uniformly since Bill Clinton. As we said a lot on this show during the primaries, and as I never tire of saying on Twitter and probably say a little bit too much, the left's agenda, or at least much of it, is very popular. There was a Fox News exit poll on Tuesday night that showed government-run health care. That was their framing, and it's kind of a negative framing, had 72% favorability. In Florida, a state Biden lost over 60% of, of the electorate back to $15 minimum wage. And there are another, you know, a number of other big ballot initiatives across the country you can look at. At the end of the day, the standard campaign that Democrats run, you know, which is, you know, very much the one that, that Biden ran, this kind of, you know, performative moderation celebration of kind of intra-elite compromise, vague discussion of the middle class, 
sort of, you know, equally vague appeals to economic aspirationalism, etc. It's just not that compelling or that appealing to people just on the level of narrative. And its track record, I would say, has more failures than it does successes. I think it was Shuja Hader who pointed out on Twitter, you know, and I love this observation. In 1972, George McGovern lost an election, okay? And centrists never tire, you know, American centrists and even centrists outside of the United States never tire of bringing up that election, right? Here's what happens when you run on the progressive left. Between the McGovern campaign and 2020, think of all of the hapless charisma challenge centrists who ran the campaign that is supposedly the alternative. Think about John Kerry. Think about Al Gore, although, of course, Al Gore did win and then just refused to stand up for himself. Think about Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis. Think about all of the midterm elections in which, you know, Rahm Emanuelism has been has been tried and look at the mixed results it's got there. In fact, if you have it, this is probably a good week to reread the Rahm Emanuel section of Ryan Grimm's We've Got People. You know, and there's all kinds of other things I can list right up to Hillary Clinton and now Biden, you know, who uh, at least did beat his Republican opponent. But for all the reasons I've said, I think achieved a pretty lackluster result, you know, to say nothing of the down ballot results in a year where everything was tilted against Donald Trump and Donald Trump should have been easy to absolutely hammer at the polls. You know, something I keep hearing people ask is how can people be so ignorant to vote for Trump considering the way he's handled the pandemic? The pandemic in particular is a sticking point for a lot of liberals. They say this is a man who denies science. Don't the ignorant people who vote for him worry about their lives? And I think this is a pretty superficial analysis of the situation. You know, this is a word that you keep hearing from these people, reality. There's an ignoring of reality, but there are many different realities that coexist. Reality is very ideological. And so consider, neither of the two candidates deny that the virus is real at this point. They differ on the severity of the virus, but they're not denying the fact of it. One of them is saying, don't worry, if you catch it, you're going to beat it. And uh, what we really need to do is stop the lockdowns because this is destroying our economy and it, it doesn't even matter. And it's all liberal fear mongering. And you've got another candidate who says that he believes in science and they're going to listen to the science. And they're going to end the lockdowns. And <laughs> and they're not going to tank the economy, but they're going to beat the virus. And so let's say you've been laid off from your job during the pandemic, or uh, you've lost touch with your community, you've lost touch with your social circles. Let's say you're single and you're alone during the pandemic, or let's say you're in a part of the country that hasn't been as severely affected by the pandemic. What message is going to appeal to you? I mean, Biden was not campaigning on, we're going to shut things down for two months, but don't worry, you're all, you're all getting paid to stay home. What was the Democratic message in the uh, House negotiations over uh, over COVID relief? If you go back to the summer, you can find Steny Hoyer, the Democratic whip in the House, agreeing that it's time to we have to we have to rein in these checks that have been going out to the unemployed because they're they're serving as a disincentive for people to work. And <laughs> employers are telling us that, you know, they're having a tough time finding enough people willing to do, you know, willing to be retail clerks, you know, in the middle of a pandemic when it's extremely dangerous to go in and the jobs pay like shit and they can get paid six hundred dollars a week to stay home. 
I mean, wh- what was the democratic message and all this stuff? What good is believing science if believing science doesn't put food on your table? Right. And I mean, th- you know, this is a bit of a digression, but uh, you keep seeing those tweets. You always see these where, you know, particular uh, states or parts of the country become like uniformly evil or uniformly good, depending on like how a few thousand votes in a handful of counties go. Right. So um, <laughs> I'm forgetting which annoying blue check mark liberal it was that a few months ago when there was a thing about seniors dying of covid in georgia and they did a thing that was like you know sips tea or something was like the caption you've seen a bunch of stuff like this in the wake of the election results so one one awful tweet i saw going around was a map and you know i haven't verified if if this was the ultimate result but a map showing that flint the county that contains flint actually broke for donald trump and you know someone had an awful caption on this that was like uh don't you people want clean water didn't the people from flint though like weren't they impressed that governor rick snyder broke ranks with his party (laughs) to endorse joe biden i mean (laughs) i saw brianna gray uh uh, quote tweet that one and say biden offered them clean water (laughs) question mark you know yeah and i think that speaks to the broader point here i mean particularly uh you know i think the presidential race is maybe a, a little bit more complex to parse but particularly down ballot what you know what were the dems and i mean i think this does apply to both what were the dems what was the grand narrative beyond restoring the soul of the nation and yeah uh, nodding to the abstract idea of science what was the dem narrative during this moment of of horrendous national crisis and economic hardship i just don't think one was really there i think in various ways particularly because a lot of activists work very hard in particular states. Democrats were once again saved from themselves. I mean, Joe Biden, his campaign, unlike Trump's, spent months not knocking on any doors. And a lot of activists were like, fuck this, we're, we're going to do that <laughs> because we have to. I'm forgetting the source, but uh, I trust it because AOC was tweeting about it. You know, there's data which shows that during the George Floyd protests, it showed that in May and June, Democratic voter registration had bottomed out because of the pandemic. It spiked again during the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. There was a huge spike in in Democratic registration. But of course, we're going to continue to hear, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and everyone else, but the people who actually ran these campaigns blamed for the results. I've seen a lot of people, you know, very effusively celebrating the narrow Biden victory. And I can understand that. I can sympathize with it because it is nice to see Trump defeated. Oh, it, did you watch the presser yesterday? I saw I bits mean, of he, it. Yeah, it was He looked funny. like he was going to cry. It, it reminded me of... Uh, you know, it was like AJ Soprano after Blanca gives back the ring. I have, though, nevertheless, still felt a bit alienated by all of it because, I mean, this is a weak, unpopular new Democratic president, somebody complicit in everything bad the party has ever done for the last 50 years. Well, not just complicit. I mean, an active agent. Yeah. The man who wrote the crime bill. You often hear that Biden voted for the Iraq war, and that's true. But what that elides is that Biden was actually one of the most vocal proponents of the Iraq war and certainly played a major role in in guaranteeing that the United States was going to be involved. More recently, somebody with just a legendarily bad track record worked with Mitch McConnell, you know, selling the farm to Mitch McConnell. Offering concessions that McConnell had not even asked for. So, and and now they're going to be back together in a room and they're going to be presiding together over a pandemic and a depression. So he's not, this is not a president who's going to have a honeymoon period. 
<laughs> you, you've got a GOP Congress, new Supreme Court, and there's Prop 22 in California, which is thanks Obama. Is going to be the template all around the world for how to do this. <laughs> and the only glimmer of hope in the face of all this is that Black Lives Matter isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, Rashida Tlaib and Jamal Bowman and Cory Bush and and all the rest of them are not going anywhere. The idea of Medicare for all is not going to go anywhere, even if it doesn't get implemented in the next decade. People's standards of living are going to keep going down. People are going to keep having medical bankruptcies. And at some point, where does all this go? Systems like this are only sustainable in the long run if the median level of prosperity is high enough. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it's a difficult thing to say right now because, of course, it's just not what most people, I mean, I don't know about listeners to our show, but, you know, most people, uh, you know, you're interacting with on Twitter, maybe some of your relatives, you know, people in, in one's wider orbit, you know, it's often just not what they want to hear at the moment. You know, Biden's one promise, the one thing that he promised above all else that he was going to deliver, right, was that we were going to go back to brunch. And that's not just a phrase that, uh, you know, the left now uses to berate liberals on Twitter. It captures something very real about what Joe Biden's appeal was, right? His promise was that he was going to neutralize politics. All this bad politics stuff that we've been dealing with since, you know, the country took leave of its senses some way uh, through 2016, that's over now. You're going to have a president who looks and sounds like you think a president should, who, you know, listens to the experts. Who heals a divided nation. Yeah, right. Who whose rhetoric is appropriate that's right who's not who's not rude and and you know doesn't tweet in a special vernacular that bothers you hugely for some reason because you have such reverence for the office of the president etc you know that was biden's big promise you know he's gonna pull off the war with iran not like the last guy he's actually gonna make it happen (laughs) he will competently preside over imperial decline again you know you're you're continuing to alienate our new sponsors at the lincoln project and i was really looking forward to a new direction for the show but oh well we have over 800 subs on patreon so i guess we can make do with that but but no biden's whole appeal was that he was going to neutralize politics and i'm just not sure that's going to happen i mean in the short term you're going to have these georgia senate races uh so that'll keep the pod save guys busy for the next uh you know next few (laughs) weeks at least they can spend a bit more time trying to get everyone really excited about political dynamo john ossoff and his weirdo obama impression that he does beyond that the world is still in crisis america is still in crisis and there is a at least a very good chance that this period of economic hardship is going to continue except with uh you know something resembling a kind of biden mcconnell coalition government And if you know anything about Biden's history, it's very difficult to be optimistic in those circumstances. By the way, I'm not discouraging people. If there are things that make you optimistic, you know, if looking at these ballot initiatives, uh, the DSA actually had a very good night. They won the vast majority of their nationally endorsed races. Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman are going to Congress. There are things to celebrate, so I'm I'm not trying to dissuade you. And of course, we're going to get to see Trump cry at least one more time. I can't even imagine what's going to happen over the next you know, few weeks when he's a lame duck president. I don't anticipate the traditional drive to the inauguration. Uh, do, do you think he's going to leave like the handwritten letter that they always leave for the next president? Actually, that's funny because I was enjoying imagining all of the funny stuff Donald Trump's going to do, all the occasions in the near future when he's going to cry. And, I, and now you've made me just think about all the future kind of mini Twitter cycles of liberals getting mad because Donald Trump is, is not following the proper decorum about like leaving the handwritten letter, attending the inauguration 
inauguration. Maybe Trump does attend the inauguration, but then his body language is like negative and like Joanne Reed has her body ex uh, language expert all back on to analyze it and people can get mad about that. I mean, it just it just never stops and it's not going to stop. I mean, I think if I think if the Democrats had won the landslide uh, that they were looking for and that they promised Biden would have fulfilled, uh, you know, at least the central premise of his campaign, which is I'm going to make all this stuff go away. Well, it's not going away. The Trump presidency is over. I have a bad feeling that in kind of spectral form in one way or another, the Trump era is going to be with us for quite a while. Here is the outstanding comedy genius of our time in a different mood as a dashing debonair Lothario, a lady killer, if ever there was one. He's a blue beard, a mass killer operating in cities all over the country. Tell me, uh, what are you doing now? Oh, a little of everything. Real estate, stock market. Well, you must have made a killing. Yes. On this episode, we're talking about Michael and us returning champion Charlie Chaplin, who I think is up there with Alexandra Pelosi and Dinesh D'Souza <laughs> in our list of uh, most discussed filmmakers. Uh, we're talking about his 1947 film, Monsieur Verdu. And I suggested this movie as a movie that I watched in the days after the 2016 election. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was feeling very down after the 2016 election, and I'm a bit embarrassed to say this in retrospect, but it felt like a period of like a shattering of illusions, um, which which sounds very corny to say now. Um, well, you had to leave my election night party. This is back uh, when, when you could get together in rooms with people and watch elections, but you had to leave my election night party because you were too... Uh, you were too shattered. I was very upset that night. And in the few days after, you know, I remember like two days after the election, you remember Leonard Cohen died. And I felt sad about that. But I remember also feeling, God, it's nice to think about something else. That's exactly what happened to me. I watched the Leonard Cohen, the uh, and we should do an episode on this sometime, but the wonderful National Film Board movie about Leonard mm. Cohen, the documentary, Ladies and Gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen, which Great came film, out. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. And it came out before he was known as a mu musician. He was still a poet. But yeah, I remember that. And like, you know, I have his wonderful concert at the Isle of Wight. I have I have a 180 gram pressing of that. And uh, yeah, I remember that being kind of uh, strangely comforting, although I was not as uh, kind of distraught as you because I just was like, well, yeah, of course, Hillary lost. You were already Jokerfied. <laughs> but I remember watching Monsieur Verdu because, you know, uh, people sometimes turn to art for comfort. In, in times of uh, sadness, <laughs> which is also a very corny thing to it's say. Up there with, uh, uh, that's among the hackiest things ever said on this show. But it, <laughs> yeah. but it's, but if, but if we say it, it makes it, if we say that, it makes it ironic. So uh, our ass is covered. And I found I wasn't particularly in the mood for something escapist. What I responded to in Monsieur Verdu on that viewing was how relentlessly bleak a movie it is. It is a movie about how things are bad and how they've always been bad, how the system is barbaric and it thrives on suffering and even people's happiness comes at the expense of other people's happiness. And that was kind of the message that I wanted to hear. I wanted something that didn't try to try to sugarcoat or try to point to silver linings in a very brutal reality. And strangely enough, four years later, I felt an urge to watch it again for those same reasons, even though I guess the election went the preferred outcome this time. But I've still been feeling a feeling of 
I don't know if despair is the right word, but a feeling that, God, better things really aren't possible, are they? And that's the that's the kind of mood that this movie, uh, I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's the kind of mood that this movie takes place in. And it's the mood that I wanted to bring to the podcast today. Uh, <laughs> well, it, de- it definitely makes sense to me. Uh, I, I do think because this is, uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of a lesser known Chaplin film. I mean, Chaplin heads will know it, but, you know, I don't think it's quite at the top of the canon for people that know Chaplin uh, through films like The Great Dictator or City Lights. So give us some background on this film. When did it come out? What is it about? How do we situate it within Chaplin's career? came out in 1947, and it was Chaplin's first film since The Great Dictator in 1940. If we're to situate Monsieur Verdu in his career, it's notable as being kind of the movie where Chaplin's relationship with the American public decisively broke. Uh, The Great Dictator was a great popular success, but it also marked uh, a period of decline in his public image. Shortly after the release of The Great Dictator, Chaplin was one of a number of celebrities who was campaigning for a closer alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union in the Second World War. He was advocating for the opening of a second front. There was an event in 1941, I believe, where he gave a speech at Madison Square Garden, and he began it with, Comrades! And during these years, the war, the war years in the 1940s, Chaplin was friendly with various leftist German emigres who were very important artists and thinkers, people who had left Germany because of the rise of Hitler, people like Bertolt Brecht, Thomas Mann, Hans Eisler. J. Edgar Hoover in Chaplin's FBI file called him a parlor Bolsheviki. Well, it's great. Actually, you know, Chaplin wrote an article uh, for the Continental Daily Mail in 1947, which is in part about addressing some of the critics of the film and also some of his critics in the United States. And one of the parts I really liked is he's, you know, he says, I'm not a communist, but he said, he says, if you step off the curve with your left foot these days, they accuse you of being a communist. (laughs) Right, right. Well, his friendship with Hans Eisler, who was a great German composer, came under particular scrutiny because Eisler was called to testify before the House on American Activities Committee accused of being a Soviet spy. Friends of the show. (laughs) uh, Yeah. And Chaplin said to the press, quite bravely, I think, how proud he was to be Eisler's friend, how much he supported Eisler. God, there really did used to be a better class of celebrity, didn't there? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Chaplin had always been a subject of suspicion by the conservative media. He was British-born, a British national, never applied for American citizenship. He was very fond of calling himself a citizen of the world. I was rereading a press conference that he gave with a very hostile, mostly right-wing press gallery at the time of the premiere of Monsieur Verdu. He said, I'm not a citizen. I don't need citizenship papers, and I've never had patriotism in that sense for any country, but I'm a patriot to humanity as a whole. I'm a citizen of the world. If the four freedoms mean anything after this war, we won't bother about whether we are citizens of one country or another. You can imagine how statements like that were greeted in the conservative media. He was particularly hounded by columnists like Hedda Hopper and Ed Sullivan. Yes, that Ed Sullivan, (laughs) who was a conservative columnist in the 40s. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, man. Can we do a whole episode diving into Ed Sullivan's like conservative columns? I would love that. I, in fact, own a paperback <laughs> book that was published in the 60s written by Ed Sullivan called Chaplin versus Chaplin. And it is mostly a reprint of the 1928 divorce between Chaplin and his second wife, 
uh, who was who was <laughs> underage when they were married. And and you know, it's a very salacious paperback. It it prints it prints the whole divorce testimony that reveals a lot of salacious sexual details and that sort of thing. And and it's written by Ed Sullivan. And and on the front page it says something like, Learn what Chaplin wouldn't write in his autobiography. <laughs> I, I don't want to derail the conversation by making this about Ed Sullivan, but was he one of those guys that was kind of like a conservative earlier in his career and then he became sort of like America's grandfather on TV? Or did he retain that identity even as he, you know, said like, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles? I mean, I assume it was the former because I never hear Ed Sullivan brought up as a conservative firebrand nowadays. Um, okay, if anybody can find a picture of Ed Sullivan with William F. Buckley, please post it on the Patreon. <laughs> That'll be our new header. The other important element of Chaplin's personal life in this period is that in 1941, he began a brief affair with an actress named Joan Barry. She had been hired to act in a film that he was developing. He was 52 at the time, and she was 22. And then in 1943, he was the subject of a paternity suit that she filed. Uh, there were two lawsuits related to this that he was the subject of at the time. One was the paternity suit, and the other was when federal prosecutors brought him up on charges of the Mann Act, which is the transport of women across state lines for immoral purposes. This is a law that was meant to target prostitution, but was brought against him in this case. He was acquitted of the Mann Act charge, but a DNA test showed that Joan Barry's child wasn't his, but that evidence wasn't admissible in California court at the time. So he ended up being ordered to pay child support for the next 21 years. But most importantly, the prosecuting attorney said things in court like, he's a cockney cad, a lecherous hound, a little runt of a Svengali. And he, he told the jury in his final statement, you know, you can stop Chaplin in his tracks tonight, you know, before he preys on other girls. This scandal was the explosion of a long-simmering public relations crisis, which was Chaplin's rather libertine sex life. In particular, his pursuit of young and sometimes underage women. This was an issue that his public image had been surprisingly resilient against in the 1910s and the 1920s. Quite surprisingly, given that he dealt with a couple of high-profile divorce cases that would have ruined any other celebrity. But by the 40s, this very severely damaged him in the court of public opinion. And also at this time, in 1944, he married his fourth and final wife, Una O'Neill, who was Eugene O'Neill's daughter. He was 54, she was 18. The marriage lasted until his death, but didn't exactly help his case in the American newspapers. So, of course, there were there were calls to boycott future Chaplin films. And it was at this moment that Chaplin decided to make maybe the worst movie that he could have made uh, to rehabilitate his public image. His first movie in many years where he didn't play the little tramp, probably the, the blackest comedy released during the 1940s, which is Monsieur Verdu. So I suppose, uh, given the subject matter of Monsieur Verdu, there's an obvious reading of it, which is that it's a rather cynical project and that it's about, you know, it's kind of personal apologia. I'm assuming you don't really buy into that reading because otherwise you wouldn't have suggested we do the film. I wouldn't say there's no truth to that reading. The scenes where Verdu is on trial towards the end of the film, I think, are heavily informed by Chaplin's own experiences. When you're the most famous and beloved man in the world and then you're being fingerprinted in court and vilified in the press, that's, that's going to do stuff to your brain. 
But I also think that this is maybe Chaplin's richest and most complex film. You can debate what his best film is. A movie like City Lights, a movie like Modern Times are perhaps more perfect than this film. But this is the one that I feel like I've gone back to the most over the years because it just doesn't work like an ordinary movie. You know, it's it's a wonderful film and it has a dark and surprising beauty to it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is a little bit perplexing, uh, particularly on first sit. It's fairly disjointed. There are uh, major events that are not shown on screen that if you're not paying close attention, you may actually kind of miss. And you may miss the uh, kind of anti-hero's role in them. You know, it has a kind of strange episodic quality. We're constantly ping-ponging back and forth between major characters in a repetitive way that doesn't build in a in an arc. It's a cumulative experience and a rather exhausting experience by the end. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to unpack about the morality of this film, because it is about, you know, on the face of it, a deeply unsympathetic character. Yes, because he's gone from playing the little tramp to playing a bourgeois serial killer. Uh, He stars as Henri Verdu, although there is some disagreement among the characters whether it is pronounced Henri or Henry. Uh, the, the French mise-en-scene of the film is a little sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a citizen of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a middle-aged, middle-class man who once made an honest living as a bank clerk in Paris, but whose livelihood was taken from him during the crash. And so to support his beloved wife and child, and also implicitly to maintain his standard of living, he embarks on a career as a bluebeard, marrying and murdering wealthy widows for their money. For most of the film, we follow him going back and forth. We encounter two of his wives, one prospective wife, as well as his quote-unquote real wife, which is sort of the anchor of his life. And then the movie takes a striking and quite unexpected turn in its last half hour, Uh, Maybe we should just go through who the characters are. One more detail that I think is important before we get into the characters. In each of Verdu's marriages, uh, you know, he has a whole different backstory. So in one of them, he's a captain of a ship. In another one, he's working for something called the International Geographical Society. And he's, you know, traversing the world, building bridges in Indochina. And I think that's an important detail because he's playing many characters. And I think at least on a symbolic level is kind of representing different kinds of bourgeois archetypes. I've heard it from some critics leveled against the film that the movie may have some latent misogyny in its depiction of the women, and I have to say I don't really buy that reading. I don't think Chaplin's life or art are free of misogyny, but on this viewing I was struck by how sympathetic, to varying degrees, I found all of the wives. The first wife we meet, Lydia, who is the only one who we see killed in the film, off-screen, but the only one who is killed in the time frame of the film, I think is quite a tragic figure, you know. She's this old spinster who is quite cold to Verdu when he shows up. She's sort of caught on to the fact that he's probably a con man. And I can sort of imagine another scene before this movie takes place where he might have come in and lit up this poor woman's life, given her hope for some new possibilities, uh, made her feel beautiful and wanted, and then instantly left her in the dust until he, he comes around every now and then taking money from her. Well... What do you want? Nothing, my dear, nothing. That's unusual. I, uh, I thought you might be a little pleased to see me, that's all. Is that all? The only time I see you is when you want something. Lydia, I refuse to quarrel with you. It's too ugly. Life can so easily degenerate into something sordid and vulgar. Let us try to keep it beautiful and dignified. 
We are not young anymore. In the sunset of our lives, we need companionship, love, tenderness. Most of all, we need each other. Ah, Lydia, we've had such beautiful, inspiring moments together. And we can have many more. I'm getting too old for that nonsense. The wife that we spend the most time with is the vulgar Annabella, played by Martha Ray, who I, I realize the movie takes place in France, but she's coded as a lower working class American. She's somebody who won a lottery and she's she's the luckiest wife. She seems blessed with an ability to fend off any bad luck. So Verdu is constantly trying to kill her and failing. This is where most of the comedy of the movie takes place. There's Madame Gronet, an elegant upper-class widow who we see Verdu pursue through the movie. There's also a streetwalker character who appears twice in the film. Once at the midpoint, when Verdu is testing out a tonic that he believes will be able to kill a woman and leave no trace in her body, he invites her up to his apartment and they have a talk where she outlines her philosophy of life, which basically comes down to, yeah, life is terrible, but it's also beautiful. It's also wonderful. Look at the stars and the sunshine and the birds. Now that that meeting is very important because in the preceding scene, Verdu is at a dinner party. He's talking with a local chemist who I guess is a friend of his, a friend of his real family. And he basically, you know, he's talking about this drug, which he's clearly going to use for the purposes of murder. And he tells uh, what he passes off as a morbid joke, basically. He suggests, well, you could, you know, it's been banned by the pharmaceutical board, but, you know, if you found a tramp on the street and you gave it to him, you know, there'd be a public autopsy and it would tell you whether the drug worked or not whether it had the intended effect. Uh, he also says something else during this scene. I, th- to me, this was actually, in some ways, my favorite scene in the movie. Because among other things, Verdu ends up saying something about chemistry being, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, like the living manifestation of metaphysical reality or something like that. And I think that's meant to convey just the sheer bleakness of his worldview. You know, people aren't people so much as entities, you know. Uh, they're atoms in the void, It's a fundamentally nihilistic conception of reality, and it's interrupted in the next scene when he meets the Marilyn Nash character, who I think is named in the credits only as the girl, and she has a completely different and altogether more optimistic view on life, which then the film further complicates, and we'll get to that. Before we get to the last act of the film, I want to talk just a little bit about Verdu and also Chaplin's performance. He's a very magnetic character, and he's in almost every scene. Chaplin, of course, is one of the most virtuosic of actors, and I was struck on this view by, by just how every gesture, every body movement is so perfectly calibrated for the screen. It's a balletic performance. He, he is so funny, even in a movie like this. He can be funny with just the slightest hand movements, the most subtle facial expressions, the most kind of quiet reactions. So finely tuned, his presence. Yeah, it's re- it's remarkable that he manages to incorporate elements of the, you know, slapstick quality of the tramp even into this performance. And at the same time, it's a character that's also just incredibly annoying. <laughs> the absurd way he flirts with these women. And also, I gotta say his voice, which is an amazing <laughs> instrument. It's an incredible voice, and it's played very beautifully in a very abrasive key for two hours. And by the end, you've spent a lot of time with that fucking voice. Yeah, he has he has these wonderfully verbose flourishes, which could almost be poetic if they were spoken a little differently. 
It's funny to hear that voice and know that Chaplin grew up on the wrong side of the Thames. He didn't grow up with this voice. This was something that he affected later on. <laughs> the character is sympathetic um, to a degree because he's played by one of the most charismatic actors that there's ever been. Because of course you're sympathetic to somebody who's been ground down by capitalism. But he's also such a monster, and the movie plays with your sympathies in a very complicated way. That early scene in the film, the Lydia sequence, where the camera follows him up the stairs and then he looks out at the moon before he kills her off screen, which is an almost Hitchcockian scene. That scene and a few others remind you of what a bastard he is. And then, you know, towards the end of the movie, he, he delivers these more political speeches that are clearly, to some degree, Chaplin's own philosophy. And one of the reasons why the movie wasn't a box office or even much of a critical success at the time is Chaplin never really tells you what to think of the character. Let's talk about the final act of the film, because I think if it does have a thesis, I mean, it's quite, it's quite ambiguous and you can read it in different ways, but it's in the final act of the film that the moral complexity really comes out. I think we can kind of mark the final act of the film for when there's the uh, the footage of the markets collapsing. You know, you see images of Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, you see newspaper headlines about the Spanish Civil War. You know, the implication is that collective financial ruin and economic crises have, have you know, brought the world to this. And it's here that Verdue runs into the girl played by Marilyn Nash a second time. And at this point, several years have passed. The last we see of Verdue is that his finances have finally been completely wiped out. Then a couple years pass, we don't know what happens in the interim. But an older Verdue encounters the Marilyn Nash character who is now riding in the backseat of a limousine, very well dressed, and she invites Verdue to join her. And they have some very important dialogue where he asks, so how did you get this? What, what happened? And she says that she married a munitions manufacturer, to which Verdue says, ah, that's the business I should have been in. And she <laughs> says, yes, it will be paying big dividends soon. And, and later she asks, or he asks, what kind of a fellow is he? And she says, oh, you know, he's wonderful and you know, he's very sweet, but he's, he's absolutely ruthless when it comes to business. The two characters spend the evening together. They go to a restaurant where Verdue is finally spotted by relatives of one of his victims and apprehended by the police. And that leads to the last couple scenes where Verdue is first on trial and then he is on death row. Chaplin delivers a couple of speeches. I'll drop the first one in here. However remiss the prosecutor has been in complimenting me, he at least admits that I have brains. Thank you, monsieur, I have. And for 35 years, I used them honestly. After that, nobody wanted them. So I was forced to go into business for myself. As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? <laughs> As a mass killer, I'm an amateur by comparison. However, I do not wish to lose my temper because very shortly I shall lose my head. Nevertheless, upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, I have this to say. I shall see you all very soon. Very soon. After that, we see Verdue in his prison cell, and he has this conversation with a priest. Ah, oh, Father. And uh, what can I do for you? 
Nothing, my son. I want to help you if I can. I've come to ask you to make your peace with God. I am at peace with God. My conflict is with man. Have you no remorse for your sin? Who knows what sin is? Born as it was from heaven, from God's fallen angel. Who knows the ultimate destiny it serves? After all, what would you be doing without sin? Exactly what I'm doing now, my son. Trying in my humble way to help a lost soul in distress. They're coming. Let me pray for you. As you wish. But I don't think these gentlemen want to be kept waiting. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Why not? After all, it belongs to him. Now, what do you make of these speeches? Because coming at the end of a movie that has, well, I, I was going to say, I was going to say it's been largely a comedy, although the movie does veer tonally all over the place. There's, there's some very heavy drama. There are suspense sequences. Uh, and there are a lot of slapstick sequences. But it takes a, a sudden turn to, I don't know if agitprop is the right word, but it becomes more didactic. Yeah, and I mean, this is where if you read the film solely through a personal lens, uh, you know, this is just Chaplin doing kind of apology for himself, you know, uh, you know, yes, I'm a man of vice, but the world made me this way. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, maybe there is a bit of that. Uh, maybe we can concede it's possible there's a little bit of that, you know, particularly in the court scene. But I, I read the, you know, final arc of the movie as conveying quite subtly and beautifully the very thing that you said off the top of the discussion which is just that it's very hard to be in the world. I think the episodic structure of the film is effective because it kind of wears you out and it conveys how exhausting it is to be not just Verdu, but somebody trying to carry your goddamn body all the way to retirement. And especially for somebody like Verdu, a man of a certain age, the world of work, the marketplace can be very unforgiving. It's hard for an older man to start a career or to, or to get a job, which is, of course, obviously no defense for his crimes. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the film doesn't absolve him of his crimes. In fact, the film wouldn't work at all if it was doing that. But it is a dehumanizing system that he's part of. Well, it's a system that asks you to play by certain rules and, and to conform to certain ethics. Verdue has done that for the first 35 years of his life, and it, and it hasn't gotten him anywhere. Meanwhile, there are all kinds of people around him, you know, and, and maybe you can charge the film with being a little bit heavy handed here. But, you know, war profiteers especially who have much better lives, much more comfortable lives than he does and are at least as evil. Human life ultimately doesn't matter if it's not making the right people the right amount of money. Verdue's life has been deemed not to matter by the system. So why should he respect anybody else's life? And incredibly, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the very final scene where he's about to be led to his execution, they offer him some rum and he refuses because in that scene, uh, he's really just accepted his situation. I mean, he doesn't resist it, which is incredible. You know, his nihilism extends to he doesn't even care about his own life at this point. But then he changes his mind and he says, I've never tasted rum before. And he takes the shot. You know, then we see him being led off to the guillotine, even though it's not much. I do think you can read that as a statement by Chaplin that, you know, in spite of everything, uh, maybe Monsieur Verdoux has it wrong. Maybe life is worth living. Yeah, it's remarkable because the obvious way to make that suggestion would to do the thing that any other Hollywood movie would do, which is bring back the girl for one final scene, one final reconciliation in the cell where they have one more Socratic dialogue together and they conclude, well, Let's agree to disagree. Or maybe, 
maybe you're right. Maybe there's a bit of what you say that's right. Or she convinces him that he's led a life of sin. And the film ends with him saying, you know, my dear, imagine the life I, I could have had with you if I'd have seen the error of my ways. Be a much worse film. But instead, Chaplin refuses us that catharsis. He seems to be building up to that catharsis by reintroducing her, but he only reintroduces her to debunk the philosophy that she espoused halfway through the movie. The last time we see her is looking on mournfully in the courtroom gallery while Verdu is giving his speech about the war machine to twist the knife in the audience hearts just a little bit more. But yes, there is the rum. And I gotta say that rum grace note hit me particularly hard this week because watching this movie in light of the current situation everyone finds themselves in, I was thinking, well, you know, at least I get to watch this movie. Great Pavarotti, the singer, when, you know, he's a very, he was a diva. He was the greatest of all divas. He was an incredible talent with a most unbelievable voice. And I've gone to concerts where he would say, no, 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 I do not feel good. I will not sing tonight. And he'd leave. See? And then I've gone to somewhere it was the most unbelievable voice that ever lived. I mean, the greatest, right? Pavarotti. But he was, a, he liked me for whatever reason. He was very terrible to other people. To me, he was nice. He liked me. But he goes, Donald, Donald, I will not sing tonight. You don't have a thousand people. I will not sing tonight because I do not feel... I will leave tonight. I... And it leave. I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, he's just canceled. But when he was great, he was great. But now I feel like him. I say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I'm getting... No, I don't have that. I'm not a diva. From the staggering account of the sermon I saw that made me aware when I was in law school, proudly for Holloway, proudly for your dad, first African-American state senator in the state of, in the state of Delaware. Everything about, and by the way, you know, I sit on the stand and it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They'd look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. And I tell you what, the men, they're now all men, the guys I work with down here, and they're all guys at the time, they're all good men. Most of them made an awful lot of themselves. And Earl Larkin had a rough time. And some of you knew Earl. I, def I came back as a public defender.
I could tell you plenty of stories. I could tell you stories about Lady Gaga. I know a lot of stories about Lady Gaga.